this week on Dig Me Out. You know, a lot of people heard of King's X, but they never actually listened to him. So this would not be a bad entry point. Tim and Jay review Ear Candy by King's X. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 164, an episode that has had a difficult birth. Let's put it that way. <laughs> what do you call that? Where is there a term for it? Where you like women think they're in labor and they're not? False labor? Yeah, false labor. Yeah. We've had some false labor. So this episode is a is a requested review. Requested, requested review. By uh, Mr. Eric Peterson. And uh, we were going to surprise Mr. Eric J. Peterson by bringing on a member of the band um, who shall remain nameless for right now. And we set up, uh, you know, a time with the manager and said, you know, we'd like to have him come on. And said, yeah, great. That'll work. Waited uh, that particular evening to record. Got no call, as it, it was. They were set up to call us, and then um, emailed him back. Said, "Hey, we never got a call." He's like, "Oh, sorry about that. My my bad. How about a, a new date?" And we said, "Sure, that works." So here we are, sitting around waiting for that call to come, and no call comes. So now twice, you know, fool me once, as George Bush said, "Shame on me." Fool me twice. Uh, won't get fooled again. Well, like, <laughs> uh, perfect. Uh, so, yeah, something like that. So twice we tried to get uh, this person on, and and uh, maybe third time's a charm. But I'm not a third time type of person. I'm no. not. I'm not into charm. I'm into uh, getting it done. And and Jay and I have a deadline in order to uh, get our podcasts out and done. So unfortunately, our interview is not going to happen. But Eric. Nonetheless, we are going to review King's X album, Ear Candy. It's their um, release from 1996, their third and final major label release. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about it. We would have talked about more if uh, somebody had shown up, but we're not going <laughs> to do that. We'll make we, do. We might, be a good even, episode. we might even plug their solo stuff and uh, their upcoming shows, but we're not going to do that now. So that's my that's my bitterness coming through. Jay King's X. This is a band you're familiar with, correct? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and then I have some. I have basically like singles, uh, in my head for this band from mostly listening to Sirius over the last ten years because this was not a band I listened to in the '90s, but they get played on Hair Nation a lot, and we'll talk about why that's kind of weird, mm. but. That is weird. That's that's the station I hear them on the most. And occasionally I'll catch them on uh, Ozzy's Boneyard or one of the other serious metal stations. But really, it's Hair Nation that plays them uh, yeah. the most. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the band. History of the band. King's X formed... Well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, Doug Pinnock, bass player, singer, and Jerry Gaskell, drummer, met in Springfield, Missouri in 1979. They spent time as The Edge and then as Sneak Preview with um, Ty... Uh, what's Ty's last name? Tabor. Ty Tabor. And then they had a second guitar player also. 
ended up moving to Houston as a three-piece, I believe, in 1985. Uh, the vice president of ZZ Top's production company named Sam Taylor um, got them signed to Megaforce Records, uh, which is not connected to the uh, 1980s action movie Megaforce, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and uh, Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, just so everybody knows. They released their first album, Out of the Silent Planet, in 1988 for Megaforce. Their second album, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska, in 1989. And then three albums in three years, 1990, Faith, Love, and Hope. The band was then moved from Megaforce, which was an indie, up to the parent label Atlantic Records for the release of their fourth album, self-titled King's X, in 1992. They enlisted Brian, or excuse me, Brendan O'Brien, who had recently produced albums for Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam, to work on their fifth album, which would be 1994's Dogman. And then in 1996, they released their final, third and final Atlantic re- recording, Ear Candy, uh, and left the label shortly thereafter. They were signed to Metal Blade Records in 1998, and they released their first album that year for Metal Blade called Tapehead. That was followed by Please Come Home, Mr. Bulbous in 2000, Manic Moonlight in 2001, um, 2003's Black Like Sunday. They then signed to Inside Out Music. In 2005, they released Ogre Tones in September of 2005. They released XV, or I guess that's 15, in May of 2008. The band's various members, Doug, Ty, and Jerry, have produced a multitude of solo projects, um, some with other notable artists and some by themselves, uh, from going back into the 90s up until now. So there's a ton of material that's King's X related. If you would like to suggest an al- our band and an album for us to review, visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. So, Jay, we got some Facebook feedback on this. Good. Uh, Mr. Eric, Eric J. Peterson, the one who suggested this album, said, I picked this because King's X was my favorite band when I was in college. They were in a strange place in that they kind of had one foot in the 80s metal camp and one foot in the alternative camp. They were a fave band of several Seattle groups with members of Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains mentioning them in the press. Pearl Jam even took them out on tour and credited King's X with inspiring their use of drop D tuning. That's very interesting. That would have been a great question to ask about if we had somebody from the band here to answer that. We don't. Um, I picked this album because it was really their last shot at mainstream success, moving back somewhere between Metallica meets the Beatles of Faith, Hope, and Love era and the grittier, punkier Dogman era. Ear Candy is exactly what the title says, a solid cycle of rock pop tunes accessible to the mass audience, and at the same time, these songs say something about life, love, and family. I want to know why these songs didn't make it on to classic rock radio. Why didn't they become the anthems? a segment of the population were they overly complex was it that the industry was heading to the pre-manufactured pop was it the dreaded telecom act of 1996 and the collapse of radio in its wake whatever the answer is king's x remains a cult band and i'm constantly amazed at the cross-section of fans and musicians who are fans 
And then Scott Russell Helgram chimed in. I was surprised to find out I actually have five King's X CDs. I thought I just had King's X and Dogman. Big fan of both. The only one in their first six I'm missing is Gretchen. This one is controversial between a friend and me. He loves it, but my opinion is reflected in not having any of their later albums. I don't hear anything worth spending time with, but I'll try again. Well, good for you, Scott. Going back and trying it again. Tim James says, This is one of those bands that I've always heard about, but never listened to any of their albums. This seems to be like a good place to start. Probably is. Uh, And then Scott Witt said, Don't know how success eluded these guys. I think the third LP hurt them as it seemed like it was what they thought they should record. When Seattle hit, anyone already around was Persona Non Grata. Even Dogman with the hype behind it didn't help. Shame. Ear Candy is good, but I think the disappointment of Dogman took something out of them. I listened to Mr. I listened to Mr. Bulbous more of that era. Interesting. So we have some uh, a variety of uh, feedback on this record, Jay. Hmm. From the, from the folks out there, the listeners. So let's tackle this record. Um, I don't want to go track by track. I'd like to do... Uh, what do you like about this record? This is the pressure to write a single album, I guess you'd say, from King's X. This was their last shot on a major. They had Dogman, which was supposed to break through, but it didn't quite break through the way that probably the band and the label were hoping. This is compared to their earlier stuff. A bit more streamlined. It's not as progressive uh, as they as some of the stuff in the early years. It doesn't have a um, an '80s production the way that some of the earlier stuff does. It has it has a very, I think, '90s production. So, what do you think works? Let's start with that. What do you think works on this record? Well, it's hard for me to not compare this record to the previous record. So, what I like about this one. Is, is I think it actually feels very sort of relaxed and um, mm-hmm. not pressured. I actually feel like Dogman feels more like it certainly has more urgency to it and has, you know, it's a darker sound and it's a different side of the band. But I feel like Dogman feels more to me like trying to write a single or trying to trying to force relevancy, like trying to make sure that, you know, they um, kind of stay stay with the tide, the rising tide. Um, I feel like this record actually seems very um, comfortable and very like kind of at peace with who they are. Um, at the same point, they're exploring some things here that I don't think they've ever explored before at this point in their career. So I kind of enjoy it from that standpoint. I think songs like a box and picture kind of really reflect that in terms of they're delivered. It just, they're, they're kind of sound autobiographical. So there's just a, there's a rawness to them. They seem very, um, they're kind of like tempo wise, almost like mid tempo and they're very relaxed, but they're not boring at all. Like they kind of carry weight and there's some, I don't know, there's substance to it without it being forced, which I think is really interesting. And overall, this is, I mean, the, the production of Dogman is, is good, but this is them sort of, not just in the hard rock mode, they explore other kind of sounds on this record and the production is amazing. It's better than great. It's amazing. So it's kind of the first record where it's not like the first three, which are a little bit thinner sounding. Mm -hmm. It's not the, the heavier uh, metal or rock sound of dog man. Um, so it's the first, you know, full 
Spectrum King's Exit album, let's call it, that also has, you know, really good production. So th- those are some things about it that stand out to me. I mean, obviously, a lot of that's relative to knowing what their early material is. So I'd like to hear from you, since maybe you're not as familiar with the earlier records, what you're what, what you liked about it, if anything. I, I like the aspect of this band combining sort of uh, disparate influences. There's some very blatant 60s psychedelic Beatles influence. It's, it starts with the first song, which is actually kind of a, as it has like almost like a Zeppelin-esque sort of feel to it with the drum beat. And then it has this like Mellotron Beatles breakdown. that they match, uh, somehow mash those two things together and make it sound completely logical. Even though if you were to say this sounds like, you know, a heavy blues guitar, you know, riff that's punctuated by halfway through going into this Mellotron breakdown that reminds you of, like, Strawberry Fields or something. It's, a, it's an interesting and weird combination but they're so talented as musicians that they're able to pull it off. And it happens throughout the record. They're able to explore some really interesting territories and pull them off. And I don't think that bands that were strictly metal or progressive rock bands of the late 80s and early 90s can necessarily do it with the ease that these guys could. Um, there's a, There's such a clear appreciation for 60s pop songwriting in the in the vein of like the Beatles sort of pop songwriting songwriting and even um you know you could even say like the the Brian Wilson era you know the Pet Sounds era Beach Boys that kind of stuff with the harmonies that are going on in a lot of the songs that aspect and you mentioned the production I mean it's it's a really gorgeous sounding record it's very full sounding the guitars and the bass sound really amazing like it's just a it's a really full sounding record. Now that's not to say that like songwriting wise, and I'll get into this later, not necessarily every song works for me, but just the sound of the whole record really works well for me. Mm. Um but there's definitely like this this is a band that you you mentioned about relaxed. I would say confident is another word. Mm. Um because they're able to tackle so many different things on this record. You go from a song like A Box to a song like 67. Uh, those are completely different genres of music, essentially. <laughs> and yet, I think that's uh, um, Doug Pinnock singing on both of those. You know, 67 has this, like, grinding, sludgy, sort of very of the 90s kind of sound to it. And then A Box is, like, this sort of introspective, really nice ballad 
Um, actually, Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket guest vocals on that. And I think that's also punctuates one of the other things. Is that these The lyrics, while at times could probably seem a little on the nose, um, especially a song like Fathers, I think that they pull it off because the earnestness seems genuine as opposed to like preachy, which I think some 90s bands, um, perhaps ones that this band was friends with, that start with P and end with Am and have an Earl in the middle. Uh, they got a little preachy with some of their vocals, and uh, it got a little grating. And I don't see this—I don't see the lyrical content as being grating because I don't—it doesn't sound as in your face. It's much more like I'm telling a story, and this is my story. Even if the, like I said, it's a little on the nose, and there's not much in terms of allegory or uh, or. Um, analogies that are going on it's just sort of this is what i'm writing about so like songs like a box and fathers are very it sounds like autobiographical so yeah it sounds autobiographical and also i, I guess i believe it better than i believe the other band that you mentioned it's just mm-hmm. easier for me to partially because the story isn't meant you know it, if it, and i don't know how much of it's autobiographical or not i guess we can only assume that since we can't do the interview but right. it's not so like extreme and it's like a you know not believable but it's interesting enough to kind of keep your attention that makes sense yeah content wise Mm -hmm. um so i think that helps and also i don't know there's just a there's a richness to this band i guess just between um you know the members being from different places and obviously um you know doug pennant's a a black guy in in a rock band in the 90s or you know 80s and 90s which was a rare thing, you know, and there's just a different life life experience there that he's he's talking about at times, and that's interesting, you know, to me, um, to hear in rock lyrics. I think for me, it, it works better, and I, and I'm way more, I guess, to your point, a little bit more forgiving, or I, I question it less. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I do agree that there's there's some material on here though that maybe we can go here next. Sure. That's not, you know. It's not their best material. I think there's some that's that is, you know, really good, and there's other stuff that isn't. I think a song like "Looking for Love," which strangely enough is on their best of musically, is fine, but lyrically, it's like, you know, just kind of mailed in. Which on this record kind of stands out because I think a lot of the other lyrics really seem to be coming from a pretty specific place, and you know, are very considered. Um, and then a song like "67." which you had talked about too, you know, lyrically it's, you know, it's very dated. Yeah. <laughs> He's trying to make a point about how many, you know, there's so many TV stations and uh, cable stations and, uh, Whoa, 67 channels. 67. <laughs> Obviously now that's comical. Um, I have 800 that I don't, <laughs> and I, don't I don't even need 770 of them. <laughs> So, you know, those kind of, those two stand out. And, and musically, that one doesn't, you know, do a whole lot for me. So those two kind of stand out to me as like, just from material wise, not, you know, as strong. But there's some, you know, little oddball things on this or, that are kind of cool. Like a song like American Cheese, which, mm-hmm. you know, for, for some fans might not work. But I think it's a cool little, you know, tribute to the Beatles almost or just a, a, fun, a little bit more whimsical side of the band that I appreciate on the record. I think it sounds really cool. Um, they can show off the harmonies a little bit on it. 
Um, they, you know, don't rock out quite as much on it, but it's still a, a really um, interesting song from a music from a music standpoint, you know, in a instrumentation standpoint. also wonder if this was a band or if it's jerry um, gaskell singing the song the drummer and uh, apparently the writer uh it made me wonder if they were fans of like jellyfish because jellyfish although being a power pop band definitely had some toes in the progressive rock sand with some of their some of the stuff that they were doing and when in their quieter moments i could kind of see king's x is sort of dabbling in that same sandbox yeah i mean they were i mean obviously king's x started before jellyfish but yeah i mean i think they were both in the same ballpark at times um and they're both hugely like musicians bands yes and it's weird because they both kind of get obviously you know the beatles influence is there you know okay fine but they both kind of you mentioned it they both kind of get lumped in with prog bands or you know a, 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 a prog light almost kind of fan base right now when i listen to king's axe and particularly this record i don't get that at all like they just got off a cruise they did one of those you know rock cruises it was for four prog bands yeah it's called progressive nation at sea <laughs> and like i don't get it now like i don't think their music's prog at all i don't know yeah, maybe i need to go back and listen to the early records more but they're playing with bands like John and or you know bands, but also musicians like John Anderson of Yes, yeah. and then like Big Elf and yeah. uh, what are some of the other ones? Uh, so a lot of like musicians who were getting together to do stuff like Bumblefoot playing with Tony yeah. Harnell and uh, Mike Portnoy and Billy Sheehan playing with know, some other guys and the Adrian some Blues power, power Trio. Yeah, I mean. I mean, they're great musicians. Like, I get they have that in common with all those guys. But from a songwriting standpoint, I mean, you know, their songs are all, you know, pop oriented in terms of the, the, you know, the writing style. I mean, there's not a ton of material that's longer than five minutes. You know, most of it's in the three to four minute range. Some of it's, you know, in the two minute range. I get at the time it sort of made sense. But now looking back, I'm like confused how they really got lumped in there other than just being good musicians well i did go back I, you know I, to prep for this interview that didn't happen i did go back and actually listen to the earlier albums like gretchen and faith love and hope and mm-hmm. and and those records 
but I didn't listen to the stuff afterwards. So did have you listened to those albums? Have did they get like more progressive and make you know write twelve minute long multi suite no. epics or anything like that, or was it pretty much staying in the same vein? No, I'm a big fan of um, XV or Fifteen. I don't really pronounce it. I, I think that's a really really good record. It's like to me, it's the best thing they've done since Ear Candy. I've sampled the other stuff. Um, I've tried to get into it. Ogre Tones, I can't get over the production of it. It's not proggy. It's just kind of dry sounding and overly heavy. Um, I probably should give Manic Moonlight some more time. Um, But for the most part, I feel like the band is since Ear Candy. I feel like the the music's kind of a mix of Ear Candy and uh, Dogman. Um, occasionally you'll hear some stuff that has like an earlier kind of sound to it, but they're really kind of staying in that net ballpark of, uh, I feel like oh, of those two records, it's certainly not any more proggy. Is it safe to say that because this band was between two camps because they had their foot in like the Pearl jam alternative world. And then they were also oddly enough in like the eighties metal world that that ends up sort of confusing the audience in some respects because you can't really I think people need sometimes like a narrow genre definition to get into especially you know if somebody's into Pearl Jam in the 90s uh, this band opens for them you know what do you what do you you've just been listening to Pearl Jam maybe some Alice in Chains some Stone Temple Pilots you know and then this band pushing Dogma comes out and plays yeah is that i mean is that in the same vein is i mean yeah well i I think it's less about the fans i think it's more about radio i think radio saw just you know to me they you know they had a hit with over my head in the late was it late 80s not 89 maybe we've been 89 Um, yeah yeah so you know people working at radio at that time you know remember that they also remember what else was on the radio at the time well, then, you know, 93, 94 comes out and they get, you know, they get the new King's X song and they think, well, this is the man that we were playing in 89. We can't be playing them anymore. Right. You know, I think there's just, I think it's colored and I think it's, it's hard for them to, you know, they're just not fair about it. And they had placed them for, in a box, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you, I don't care who you tour with and how much touring you do, you know, you, you need something else to help. Otherwise, you end up where they're at right now, which isn't the worst place. I mean, they can, they don't make a ton of money, but, you know, they also didn't, they all didn't have to quit and become, you know, work at Walmart. So you end up in this place where you've got, you know, people that have seen you live and that you won over, but that's only so many people. You can only play live to so many people. And, you know, the mass appeal that you get from, something like radio just never happened because I think of timing of nothing else. And, um, you know, it's kind of the story of, of their career to me. I, I think if, you know, on Dogman, if they were torn with Alice in Chains, they would do fine with that fan, you know, that, that those fans, they had never heard of the band before. I, I think they would have been, especially if they would have played, you know, a set that was, you know, heavy in that material. Um, I think it would have went over great. So I think it comes more down to radio than anything else personally yeah that and in the 90s obviously uh, mtv was important and uh 
I think King's X is probably getting relegated to like Headbangers Ball, which is another yeah. weird thing because they're probably opening for Pearl Jam, but then getting played not when Pearl Jam would be played, which would be like yeah. Alternative Nation or 120 Minutes. I, I think Black Flag got some some. There was a time too where early on in the alternative thing, I think is when that song was out, and that got some play. I think on alternative radio and alternative, you know, MTV programming. Um, you know, the rest of the record isn't, it's probably the heaviest song on that uh, record. So, you know, I think they got a little bit momentum there, but the, you know, they just, they're too, they couldn't follow it up with something exactly like it, you know? So they, they've touched on a bunch of different areas. And I think that's why musicians tend to like them, right? It's like mm-hmm. they do things that are familiar enough to whatever kind of music you like, whatever form of rock and roll you like. But then there's also something, you know, coming from something that maybe is new to you or, you know what I mean, that's a little bit foreign to you that piques your interest. It's the nature of the elements that they combine together. So tell me, we touched on some of it a little bit. What what doesn't work for you on the record? Really, it's 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 those, those two songs I mentioned before, Looking for Love and 67. <sighs> Really, I, I don't know. That's about it because I like the mix of, you know, the, the their, their albums are always a mix of um, pre- predominantly Doug and Ty songs. Um, I will say that I feel like it's a little bit easier. This is the first record where it, where it becomes crystal clear who's writing what. I feel like the earlier stuff, it's a little bit harder to, t- to distinguish. So a song like Mississippi Moon, that sounds that's all tie like that could be off of one of his if, if you picked up a solo record by him it pretty much all sounds like that song So I feel like there's a little bit more division going on in the band on this record. Um, I think as an album, though, I kind of like that. It gives you some different um, ebbs and flows and just different feels when you listen to it from start to finish. But, you know, I could see as like a, as a King's X record, you know, some some people may not want that. They might want more of a blend um, on, on, on each song. So that's about it. I mean, I think it sounds great. I think lyrically it's it's. You know, it's interesting to me. Um, musically, it's a nice mix of melody and sort of heaviness. Like I mentioned, there's, um, what, three, I guess you'd say almost three ballads on this. And yeah, I think all of them are pretty good. And I know even Li- Lies in the Sand, which is really slow, I still listen to that song. Like, I don't skip it. And that's, if you listen to this podcast enough, you know. 
uh, I think both of us, but especially me, uh, I'm prone to skip the ballads on most of these records because they're just boring. Mm-hmm. Um, that song is really, really slow, and it's somehow, to me, still pretty interesting. Uh, it's very sparse, but there's just a, something about it that's just the right tones and the right vibe and just enough happening to kind of keep me interested in listening to it. So I don't have a whole lot to uh, to complain about on this record. I, I don't really either. Uh, it, it's not a record that necessarily blows me away, but it's not a record that I really skip a lot. I think uh, on the on the latter half, when you get into songs like Run or I think Life Going By, I think they're fine. They're kind of mid-tempo. They're not as... I think it's not as interesting as some of the earlier stuff, like Sometime. Uh, I like that. It's got a good hook. Um, I like the guitar riff in that song. So I, I think some of those those end songs just kind of run together for me. But that's about it. I mean, I think it it's just... You listen to it and you're just like... This doesn't sound overly complex, but I know what's going on is way more than I'm r- realizing. Yeah. I think, and I think that's what their secret is: is that they make complex sound easy. And as a three-piece, I know that there's overdubbing going on in the studio because that's just normal for even you know any three-piece. They they tend to beef up the guitars or whatnot. But from from everything I know from reading about them, they're still like they're able to pull that off as a band, um, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, we've even reviewed some albums that are by three pieces that you know they. They either did beef up the guitars and overdub them, or, or or didn't. But they they sound you can tell they're a three piece, you know. And I think for some people that don't, have no idea about this band, never seen them anything. If you told them they're a three piece, they probably wouldn't believe you. So even on record, sometimes you know it's hard for bands that only have three members. They don't have the ability to even sound. They just sound like a three piece. They sound simple, and they can't even um, kind of figure out how to fill that out on a record get alone on a you know on the stage so right i I guess one of the questions i would have liked to ask him maybe we can talk about this quickly but does this feel like a band to you that um kind of tries to stick to a three-piece ethos like we're you know we're going to try to do what we would do live and not over embellish it or does it sound like a band that just kind of goes in the studio and does whatever they think they need to do to make the song right well, I think in a lot of instances, you can tell that, you know, like this track two, I mean, there's a lot of extra percussion in that song. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you know, unless they were having extra musicians with them live, they took the production approach as opposed to the, you know, accurate accuracy approach. Mm-hmm. Just wonder if that gets more like yeah. the less members you have, if that becomes a bigger issue. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like where y'all you'll do you'll do some stuff in this studio but i wonder if there's ever the conversation of like all right wait wait, maybe we're going too far here we just don't need to be we're still a three piece we need to you know right adhere to some formula i've just accepted the fact that you know even though a band is quote unquote a three piece or a four piece or whatever they'll if they're big enough you know they'll take out a, a second guitar player have them stand you know towards the back to the to the side of the drums not put them on a spotlight or uh, have a keyboard player that's kind of hidden back there or to do whatever keyboard parts. I mean, the bigger bands just do that. You know, it's just, it's just kind of to be expected. Yeah. 
Uh, so final rating, Jay. Worthy album, better EP, decent single. Oh, I'm a worthy album. This is, uh, I would say, I'm a huge fan of this band. So I'm trying to figure out where this album would fit. My all-time favorites. It, it's probably, it's definitely top five. It might be top three albums by them. I'm also going worthy album. I'm, I would trim probably one or two songs. I could trim two songs, get it down to 11. Uh, but overall, I think this is a, it's a really good sounding record and it's a really interesting journey that you, they take you on from song to song. I think it's a band that, you know, like was mentioned by uh, Tim James. You know, a lot of people heard of King's X, but they never actually listened to him. So this would not be a bad entry point. Um, I think you'd get a good, you know, approximation of the King's X sound by listening to this record. So hopefully people will uh, go and check it out. Yeah, it gives you a flavor of the range. I think there's a lot of people that are biased towards the first three records. You know, there's just something about those that are, especially for the time, they were just so different. I mean, when I heard Over My Head on the radio at the time, it was like music from another planet, you know, which is funny because they get lumped Some people want to lump them in with the bands that were on the radio at the time, but that song sounded nothing like any right. of those bands. No. So there was just some special magic about those albums because they were just so different. Like nobody... Nobody had thought to do anything like that, you know, with with Beatles influences and sort of mixing it with a heavy grinding kind of rock sound. So there's a bias towards that, but I would say this record gives you gives you a good flavor of what this band's about. I think if you don't like this record, if you don't like anything about this record, then you probably can stop. If there's some stuff that you like, then you can start to figure out like which parts of the band that you wanna explore a little further. There's a lot of material here to go through. They have a lot of records. Uh, Jay, there is a band that combined that Beatles sound with a heavy uh, guitar rock, and that's called Beatallica. And uh, <laughs> oh, everybody needs right. to everybody needs to check them out because their Beatallica <laughs> is awesome. That's right. So that's uh, that's how we're gonna wrap this one up. Uh, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback at iTunes. We need to thank Mr. Eric J. Peterson for selecting Kings X a very good choice uh, a perfect one uh, you might say for this podcast uh, you know this is an overlooked and underappreciated band and we're happy to uh, to bring them to the masses only uh, sorry that we weren't able to do so with a special guest but uh, wasn't to be so uh, that's, way, that's the way the uh, cookie crumbles and uh, that's it for Ear Candy by King's X uh, Jay and I will be back uh, next week with another episode, a requested review episode of Dig Me Out. Yeah. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Last September, I said somebody take a photograph, I got a camera.